Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you're tuning in from across the planet, this is a part where I usually say good morning, good evening, and good night, because it's Mango Capital being what it is, uh, it does tend to have an audience that quite literally joins us from many parts uh, of the world. Thank you for making time for joining us today. I want to do a, a status check this evening on the state of what, at least at this point, is still East Africa's largest economy, but it's not firing on all cylinders. And you can see the red flags pretty much everywhere you go. You walk into entrepreneurship circles, you walk into management circles, you hear a lot of conversations around increasing productivity. You hear concerns about diminishing household spending, concerns about a much weaker currency. You walk around policy circles and concerns about debt and how to settle that, especially the 2024 Eurobond. Those certainly come up, but there's a lot more beyond just 2024. That may have grabbed the headlines, but it's not the entire story. So we'll cover all of those issues and, and a bit more uh, in, in the next hour and a bit. If you do have questions for us, please, by all means, send them in. Mongo Capital will be monitoring our inbox. So we'll be keeping tabs of the questions that come in along the way. And we'll try and tackle that with our speakers tonight. Now, my panel today is made up of some fairly talented individuals. We've had uh, Johnson Derry, who, of course, is relatively well known, I'd say, in, in our economic circles here in Kenya. Tell me if I'm being unfair in this description, Larry, but we don't have that many libertarian economists, at least in this corner of Africa, but still, it's always quite interesting to have views from your side of the world. Also tonight, we have Wangari Mwikia. She's the MD of Expertise Global. She's also, however, a member of KEPS's public finance board, and we're really looking forward to hearing what the private sector is thinking about the way things have gone so far in 2023 and where essentially that sets us up for 2024. And beyond, what, what are the three main macroeconomic assumptions that you're using for planning for 2024 on inflation rates and the direction of, of employment and household spending? Hey, Rama, is your, is your question directed at anybody? Yes, to you, actually. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. I, I think we really prefaced it well, Rama, because I think sometimes when we think about what's happening in Kenya today, we are also remiss to really understand that this is happening at a global scale. And if you talk to many people or you listen to many economic forums and people in the economic circles, we're talking about this thing called a polycrisis, right? And public finances are under real pressure from a series of major economic shocks. And also spending needs are really rising. When you look at it, the global economy is facing challenges at a scale really not seen since at least a century. Starting with COVID, the pandemic that started arguably in China, which triggered the largest global economic recession in more than a century. And that then triggered a, an unprecedented fiscal, fiscal policy response and added to already high uh, levels of debt in countries across all levels of income, not just in low-income countries. The war broke out in Europe, and recently we've also been in the turmoil in Gaza. And this has created an energy crisis, a cost-of-living crisis that extends really far beyond the region's borders and really creating a lot of demands for things like social, social assistance and, and the like. And then you couple that with inflation levels that are, light, are rising, again, to levels not seen since really around the 1980s. Central banks are raising interest rates. Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates. Climate crisis is also upon us. So it's really, when you talk about a crisis, this is a situation that's really unprecedented. And Kenya itself is not safe from the ravages of these recessions. This is why we're seeing the funding squeeze. Because of the poly crisis, we have low growth. 
low revenues. We don't have access to financial markets as we did before. So we are looking inward and raising taxes and really putting the squeeze on everybody, which is affecting the cost of living. So really to put it in context, it's a global phenomenon and Kenya is one of the first times that we've had to face this as a, one of the stronger economies, as you mentioned, in East Africa. And we're, we're, can, if you see what the big players, the CS, the CBK governor and the others are doing, it's really uncharted waters. And we can tell by every day when we wake up in the morning from new regulations, new uh, taxes on taxes, it becomes really challenging. Just to put it in context, I think that we need to start from there. Fair enough. But at the end of the day, some of the problems, granted, they're all, of course, external factors. Fuel prices going as completely crazy as it did, those are factors entirely beyond our control. But the debt side of things, the public spending side of things, the fiscal policy side of things, to a large extent, that's all essentially in our control. So in one sense, taxpayers, enterprises, households are now essentially paying for policy blunders that were made in the last decade, aren't they? You can't really divorce fiscal policy from what's happening in this space. If you think about, if you think about the budgets and expenditure and the revenues, so if, and I think the Kenya Kwanzaa government came on a platform of being fiscal consolidation and improvements in cost of living. But at the end of the day, when the president took the helm, the real realization that actually reducing already a very austere budget, yeah, of course, there are places for cutting, you know, you can always cut in expenditures, but really it's not that much, especially in a low middle income country. Um, and so where did they turn? Of course, they turned to the taxes. But even when you think about the deficit between the revenues that we collect and our budget, our budget needs, that deficit was about 4.4. But then because of the exposure, we are really exposed to the global markets that has increased to about 5.6 from what CS Dunga has told us. So even fiscal policy is not unaffected in this situation. It is domestic, but we are largely exposed a very globalized economy, we still have to deal with those effects. Just before I bring Derry in, from the perspective of a citizen who's looking, for example, at the supplementary budget, right? And then they see that, oh, no, no, we've increased the spending allocation for offices that belong to the spouses of the president and the deputy president. The argument to be, hang on, why are we talking about fiscal consolidation, yet allegedly there's no money, extra money to be spent on what essentially are non-core issues? Right. The perception from citizens would be, hang on, I feel it is unfair for me to be taxed more, and yet I am not seeing any effort to improve discipline in public spending across the board. Isn't that a valid sentiment? hundred percent. It's, it's totally valid when you think about some of the quote-unquote wasteful spending that the government is engaged in. To be clear, definitely you don't want to see that kind of loose spending in a government when it's really... Uh, austere situation. Fact of the matter is, even though they did put that money towards more better use within the budget, it's not going to make a very big difference, to be honest, but the optics are not good, right? In terms of how many more patients or how many more agricultural inputs, et cetera, can you get from that money that's being put in? So I do think there's a lot of ways that you can rationalize a budget, but in an economy like ours that has a lot of needs, uh, it becomes very difficult to, to rationalize it much further. Uh, and so people turn to raising taxes, as you can see, uh, that's rampant in, in the economy today. Yeah, I think definitely if the optics are not good, spending is challenging. Ministry of Finance doesn't really have a very good eye as to what is being spent in the ministries. And the ministries have no incentive to reduce the spending. So that's also very challenging. So really the CS uh, and the cabinet really need to rein things in to make sure that, first of all, that we are spending wisely 
and also the optics on spending on things like the first lady's office, Manenos, <laughs> are reduced. That's a very interesting description that we've gotten of you in, as from one of our listeners. Someone has said, hang on, let me see if I can pull it up uh, from the archives. There is a last remaining same public intellectual on these streets, uh, which is pretty high praise given how um, Kenyans on Twitter can be a bit, um, shall we say, colorful in their description of individuals. Uh, let's pick up the conversation from where we've just left it, right, with Ongari. From your perspective, going into 2024, what are your main assumptions on inflation rates and the direction employment and household spending is going in? Seems we still have a few technical issues that we need to clean up um, on that connection, but we'll try and get Ndari back for that specific question. Wangari, if I may come back to you, from Kepsis' perspective, have you engaged the finance ministry on a medium-term revenue strategy? And if so, what response are you getting? No, I haven't been in, involved in any um, of the discussions from the, the medium-term revenue strategy, to be honest. Uh, I haven't yet been a part of those discussions. But one of the things that I, I think about and I think about on a daily basis is really about the tax policy what is a tax policy situation in government? We keep saying that we, the draft one that's there, the one that was considered, are we really taking things seriously to create a tax framework that is predictable and that would foster confidence within the private sector? And I think coupled with that, I think it's becoming very obvious if you've been seeing what's been going back and forth in, on WhatsApp recently, that the way fees and charges and taxes are being levied, there's no real an analytical thinking behind it. And there's no care in really making sure that what is being put out there is sensible. I remember yesterday I was seeing some of the charges from the immigration foreign affairs and some of those fees have gone up by over 10 uh, times, right? So really thinking about, is this a finger up in the air trying to test the waters? Is this real uh, policy? Is it analytical frameworks that are being put in place? It's really anyone's guess, but it, it really does make me worried uh, from that perspective. What parts of that document, let's leave the engagement with the, with the guys who drafted it to Treasury aside for the moment, but are there parts of it that you look at and you're just like, this, these policies make absolutely no sense. Perhaps to some extent you could say there's an argument for maybe raising the VAT rate, harmonizing that across the East African community. But on some other things like imposing an excise tax on fossil fuels on already our fuel prices are as high as they are. And we know the cascading effect that has uh, across household spending and business expenditure. Some of those just do not seem to make any sense. They appear, at least from my end of the, of, of, of the table, to destroy uh, businesses and individuals' ability to actually get business done to generate taxes rather than helping them create more revenue. Indeed. And I think some of these policies and some of the, the, the clauses within the policies are working at cross purposes. And I think this is really a, a result of trying to harmonize several different frameworks that may be competing, right? So we're trying to harmonize across the East Africa region, but you're also trying to balance with the local economy and then also trying to make sure that you're balancing between different aspects in terms of revenue raising. Sometimes you come up with a Frankenstein kind of policy that really doesn't make true sense. And I think even this is, it's one of the first tries and I'm hoping that this can be reviewed. Policy is policy. It's not regulation. It's not put in law. Something that we can work on and improve over time. Over the course of the year, speaking to, especially on the private sector side, right, representatives of business organizations I had a conversation with Javi Lalaka. I think it was in September. He said, with this sort of tax trajectory that we're seeing now, companies will essentially say, look, I've got to essentially rationalize 
my spending. And inevitably, as part of that, we might end up seeing some job cuts coming up as a rational response to what we're seeing at the moment. But from where you sit, Wangari, are you seeing any data that essentially points to significant weaknesses in both business spending and household spending? I haven't looked at that data in particular, to be honest, Rama. And it is true. Something's got to give. Yeah, you can't continue in a situation where costs are going up, the cost of doing business is going up. Of course, if you're a rational business owner, you have to manage your expenses. And that may turn into more kind of cyclical unemployment and permanent unemployment. And we're asking ourselves, if this is predictable, if the government is conscious of these, of the results of the policies that put in place, and the steer measures that are in place and what are they doing on the other side to kind of balance in terms of social assistance, in terms of ensuring that we're managing people who are coming out of work. What are you doing in kind of the entrepreneurial economy, informal economy, creating a space for it being a recession and it and we knowing that in a recession that a lot of people are going to be in trouble. What are we putting in place to make sure that we can buoy them out over the period? With respect to the question of public debt. It's been a huge talking point the entire year, starting, of course, with the fact that we have this big slug of debt to repay in June 2024, $2 billion for the 2024 euro bond. But leaving that aside for the moment, are there other aspects of Kenya's public debt, how we're handling it, for example, that has you really concerned? I think I always like to preface this discussion on, on public debt to de-demonize de public debt and to say that in and of itself is not, a, is not a bad thing. And even if you liken it to what happens in household level, it makes sense to borrow to invest in high capital investments so that you are able to free up your other money to pay for other expenses that you have in your spending. So in and of itself, debt is not bad, but it can become troublesome and problematic from a global perspective when, number one, you're borrowing at high interest rates, you're borrowing significantly externally, so you're exposed to foreign exchange rates. And if you're not using the money that you borrow for productive purposes, so you're paying, for example, for non-capital expenditures, that then are not generating revenues, which you would use then to pay off your debt. So I think in terms of that, the usage of debt has become a big question. It's been one of those big black holes within the national treasury, within our coffers, saying, are we using this money for development purposes? And even for when we use this money for the SGRs, for the roads, or, or, or the things that we're using them for, capital investments, how quickly are we going to earn back? I, I don't think People can argue much that, the, that for example, the roads, the, the highways that we have are a bad investment. Uh, I think they've been supporting the economy, a really fast-growing economy. But in terms of the return on investment, um, it can be unclear and it can, the question comes up, how are we then paying back based on this investment? And then I think in terms of the exposure, I believe a large portion of the debt is dollar-denominated. And so when we have to repay and then we're seeing what's happening with the dollar, it becomes very challenging for us to pay. So this big question of paying back the euro bond has been on everybody's mind. Everybody's looking at Ghana back and forth and looking at Ghana, looking at us, looking at Ghana, looking at us. And, and the argument around Ghana was people say, and I remember David D was alluding to the fact that Kenya is too big or too important to fail. People could have made the same argument about Ghana and yet Ghana went the way Ghana did. I think it's important to make sure that our debt composition is balanced, but also to really reconsider and actually make more transparent how we use the money from what we're borrowing.
And of course, that whole Kenya being too big to fail and Ghana being too big to fail. It's an interesting, we've heard it a couple of times in some circles, but I always come away from that with a whole bunch of question marks of, yeah, but that essentially means that someone else is dictating your policies as far as your ability to essentially raise capital is concerned. 2024, the Eurobond, how concerned are you about our ability to settle it? I think going by what David D was saying, I refer to him, I think we all follow him or we all hear his views on what is happening. And if indeed it is correct, we are going to be able, and in fact, the State of the Nation speech by the president today said we're going to pay about $300 billion uh, before the end of the year. And with the support of the IMS, who have been backing us with and also giving us, I think, the exceptional facility that we will be able to pay. And I think we will be able to meet our obligations. So I'm not terribly worried. At the end of the day, like you said, if we're going to get money from this lender of last resort, we have to do what they need us to do. And we're not going back to the days of structural adjustment frameworks and, and that, that situation. But at the same time, as, as with any lender, if they're going to give you money, they have to be, make sure that you're spending it in the right ways and you're doing the things that will make you stronger. By the same token, Ghana did have the same situation, right? Ghana, when they went to the debt default, they did go to the IMF. They did get all these, have to abide by a slew of, of conditions. And then uh, at the end of the day, they did get buoyed and they did revise, but then again, they went down. So really what's sustainable and, and what's good for us at, at the end of the day, IMF can support, the IMF can give direction, but we also need to be very much in the driver's seat in understanding and making sure that we are okay and we don't default. So there's a couple of questions that are coming in from the audience and the, there's some interesting ones in here. And I want to actually start with. Uh, a pretty straightforward one from a handle BGK says, would you use the description jobless growth with respect to the Kenyan economy, pretty much akin to, to what's happening in South Africa? And if so, what can a treasury minister do to break that cycle? Wow, that's an interesting one. We are still growing. Yes, I think we're about, uh, it's about 4% now, 4.5 around there. We are... When you think about jobless growth, and I think alluding back to what we were talking about earlier, in a time of where there's a funding squeeze, a fiscal squeeze, in a situation where there's a significant taxes being levied on the populace, subsidies being reduced, yeah, we definitely will be seeing unemployment numbers start to edge up. In terms of growth, there's a reduction in growth. Yes, we are growing. We're not growing as fast as we were. And so I think it's almost like we're running on fumes, to be honest. And I think we have some fundamentals that are propping us up, but not in the way that that we would need. Jobless growth, perhaps. Perhaps that's a fair assessment. But at the end of the day, we need to think about, I think that alludes to the policies in the finance ministries that need to really start to look more long-term than having this kind of short-term outlook that is too focused on around the choices of allocations uh, and start to think about how do we balance and smooth things in the long-term. Just like to remind all our listeners uh, on the space at the moment, if you've got questions, some angles to the whole debt, employment, public spending questions that you'd like us to cover in a bit more detail, please, by all means, send them in. Either respond to the tweet that announced the space itself, because there is someone from the Mungo Capital account that's actually monitoring that. I'll fire that off into the DMs. We'll also see it over there as well. So keep those questions coming. We'll address them pretty much as the program rolls on. But I want to go back to the question of the 2024 Eurobond, because from where I stand, 
it seems like there could have been a much better combination of both communication from government and execution. Because as far back as August, for example, the central bank governor was saying, oh, Treasury has told us we have secured new sources of external financing. Now, if it was somebody on the order of a billion, half a billion dollars plus, which is what essentially you are talking about from TDB and Frexin Bank, we would have seen that hit, right? The money coming through in reserves. And yet today, the, the president now speaks of, yeah, we're going to have, we'll buy back part of the euro bond. We'll be able to settle 300 million in December. It shouldn't be a problem. But considering the fact that you don't have that external source of cash, at least not from any source that I can see, that has already come in. And yet here you are already signaling, no, we're good. We'll pay it. We're good for it. Do you think that's a policy blunder? I think you also have to realize, I think uh, the president is <laughs> between a rock and a hard place, right? Right now, at the moment, not very popular because of how things are going. Every day we're hearing about fuel prices going up. We're hearing about all these things, spending that is not essential. People are getting worried. El Nino's around the corner. So many, like I said, alluding to what we had in the beginning, this polycrisis scenario. So even when I was listening to the State of the Nation address. I didn't really get the sense that he was addressing some of the, everybody was waiting to hear that how, what he's put in place is for our good or what is happening. And he understands what's happening. And yes, it's an austere kind of situation. We're in a, a recession, there's a polycrisis and address some of those things. But he did put on a cloak or of showing us the things that, that are happening, that testifying some of the things that he has put in place. He talked about the community health workers. He talked about other things that were happening. And he did talk about, look, here we are, we are going to be paying 300 million. So all this kind of concern is for naught. So I think in terms of what he had to present, and I think coupled with that, Rama, I think Treasury is not really good at communicating anything. <laughs> <laughs> I say this as someone who, I, I used to work in treasury for a, for a short stint, keeping cards close to the chest until things seem to be coming through. But I think the president needing to give us a, a message of hope, needing to give us something to latch on to was what buoyed the day. So whether or not we have the dollars in our, our bank account, in the, in the consolidated fund, that message, I think he felt that he needed to communicate that message so that we feel that, that something is actually happening in the positive, where so much has already been happening in the negative. Indeed. And just for context for some of our listeners, when I spoke to the central bank governor in IMF and the World Bank annual meetings last month, and I think I have this in my notes over here, actually, let me just try and pull that up. His argument at the time was that, and I'm quoting him here, we would like to use some of the resources, essentially what they would be raising from development partners, IMF, World Bank, and to see, to buy back part of the debt. And the figure we have mentioned is $500 million. So at the time, months ago, the figure in question was half a billion dollars. It's, it's interesting to see that the, the numbers shifted in about four or so weeks, four, six weeks, down to around 300 million. Wangari, it's a fairly basic way of phrasing it, but it's a question that I get a fair bit of time. Every time questions around our debt and debt service costs and the opportunity costs that come with debt service come up. But, but why is the idea of asking some of our foreign creditors for an extension, not a haircut, not a principal reduction? We're saying, look, we're not saying we don't owe you $3 billion. We just like to pay it in, say, 15 years rather than 10. Why is that such a difficult thing for Treasury to do? It's a credibility issue. If people are investing in the economy and they're investing in significant amounts, 
and you say that you're going to pay them by a particular time, you better make sure that you do because if you want to have that kind of credit line or um, trust and confidence within the market, you need to abide by what you say. So if you go back to them and saying, we said we're going to pay, but can you give us an extension? That's a really negative signal, a big red flag for investors saying, you know, did you promise you're going to give us some money by this time? And you did not fulfill that promise. So I think that credibility is, is extremely important in global markets because it can really affect how you're able to continue to raise money, raise financing externally. Quick follow up on that, Wangari. But granted, there's a question around credibility, which is 100% fair. But the flip side of it is that you also have these massive macroeconomic shocks that economies have to deal with, which may essentially be out of their control, right? You're dealing with inflation that's essentially, to a large extent in our case, it's argued, right? Fuel prices being as up and down as they have, a currency adjustment that was long overdue. In that sort of context, if a company can essentially go to bankruptcy court in the UK or the US, for example, and say, look, I need to essentially reschedule some of my debts or discharge some of them, why shouldn't the same grace be extended to countries? I think, again, this is an unusual situation. If Kenya was going through this issue on its own because of its our own kind of fundamentals, economic fundamentals, and it was not a global phenomenon, then this may be something that we can say, okay, fine, let's renegotiate. But even our lenders, they are also going through the same polycrisis situation and they need their resources, right? When we say we can pay and they need their money, then it's almost a double whammy, right? Number one, we didn't fulfill our promises, but also number two, they want their money and they, it's not that they want it, they need it, right? So I, I think that's the, the, the situation that we're in right now. This is not business as usual. This is an, a very unusual situation that we're in globally today. So far, we've just been speaking about some relatively, I guess you could say, negative aspects of, of how things are playing out. But to the extent that you've got, we, or rather we already have, currency is about 30% weaker. And we have a rough idea of the sort of pain and the, the adjustments that we have to make at household level, at business level. Are there any bright spots to speak about from your perspective, especially for 2024? Or is 2024, from your view, another year of painful adjustments? I think taking it back to the local, my sense of how the current administration is working it is that you feel the pinch now, go through the austere measures now, taking away kind of the things we've been feeding at the teat of subsidies and things like that and try to remedy or readjust those fundamentals now. And then towards nearer to the election year, start to loosen things up a bit. So take the bitter medicine now and they start to fix the economic fundamentals and start to get better over the years closer to the elections. But by the same token, it's not just a, a local thing, right? It's not just a, a domestic situation. Like I said, we are in kind of the global context. So it's really, it, it, it could be anyone's guess what would be happening next year or in the coming years. God forbid anything really challenging happens. War is one of them. And I think those are starting to come at a much more frequent rate in places that we didn't think would be having these tensions. And there's also a lot of geopolitical tensions between China um, and, and the U.S. that also may have some economic impact. So really, um, I think domestically, we, we may be bearing the, the worst of, of the measures, fiscal the kind of a policy and regulatory measures. But because we are exposed and because uh, globally everything is in polycrisis, 
it's like the variable that we don't really have much control over in terms of how it affects us going forward. I'm just going to try one more time and see if we can get Barry on the call. Barry, can you hear us? I can hear you there very well. Okay, perfect. You probably have heard us talking about 2024 and all its the shenanigans around the payment issues that we have there. To begin with, what's your position on that note? We're not going to default on it, right? Able to 2024 um, is likely going to be worse than 2023. And based, based on one thing, if, if, you, if you pick the analogy that your private sector is the engine that's driving the car forward, right now what the government is doing is it's throwing a lot of sand into the engine and the engine is not going to work optimally. So the question is, uh, how can 2024 be any better? Now, there's a potential for some sort of recovery. So there are two things that are happening globally. Because of depressed demand, or you could say demand destruction, thanks to global central banking policy, now that they're tightening, prices are falling. So there's some sort of relief as a result of that. But also, and I don't know how this plays out, because of recessionary pressures today, next year, you could have a loosening of monetary policy. And maybe you have a few dollars flowing back to frontier and emerging markets. So that's some relief, but that's external. But from internally, this government, my view, is making everything worse. Does government actually even have to engage in an early buyback of the 2024 euro bond? Because if you already have, if the argument here is that we will have the cash that we need to pay it off to settle it by June, why not just keep that cash in reserves and then spend it when you actually need it in one go? In June 2024, right, extinguish that facility rather than do this partial redemption at the end of 2023 and then say, no, we're, we're okay, we're good. What's the logic for that early buy? If I may. Yeah, sure, Dixon, go for it. Sure. So, so I, I suspect uh, this is because uh, we had better commitment to, uh, to buy back the uh, 500 million. And I suspect the feel is that maybe we should see that through. But you have a point. I think 300 looks a bit small to go through the hassle of going through an auction. Remember, as per the current status, we can actually buy 10% of the euro bond without any reference to the market. So you can go silently buy up to 200 million and just tell the market about two, about 200 million is done. Which ideally I thought that is what we should go for. Just take the 200 million and then the extra 100 doesn't make sense because then if you do an auction for 300 million, you could have bought what, 200 million silently, but you have to do an auction if you're going to go above that as per the exchange rules. So that is a slow hassle for such a small amount. And ideally, you only buy in six months. And if the price is at, uh, say, 97, the saving is not that much in terms of how much you'll make. You'd rather save by, by pushing that forward. And another point to that is that, look, we know the status and nature of the government finances that most of the funds seems to come in the last quarter in Q4 next year. But usually on the first, in the first half, which we are now, we see a lot of debt service coming through. We pay in the, uh, the SGR loans, the Chinese loans. We've obviously had maturities that are front-loaded from last year because usually when you get to the fiscal year, you front-load a lot. So historically, you have a bigger coupons around this part of the year. So that means that a bigger chunk of the revenues right now is going to service debt. And this will be so for most of this half. So if you get to December and you get in some fiscal headroom in terms of uh, these funds coming through, I would rather take that 300 million, which is close to 50 billion shillings, and pay some urgent bills, ease pressure on the local currency side if you're borrowing locally. And then just 
have that as, as part of your reserve into June and then you pay off in June. Because if you strain to pay early and domestically you're still paying high interest rate, uh, you, you might not really solve that much. So I would rather you reduce the, the sort of pace of local currency borrowing, keep that in your reserves and then pay in June. I think for offshore investors, what really they want to see is not early payment. What they want to see is a build-up in FX reserves in such a way that when you pay out in June, it will not have you going below, say, three months cover. So if you have to build up your reserves, take this 300 million and rather maybe you get some more money from the IMF, you get, get the World Bank expectations for the DPO and the budget support, and then you have sort of nine, close to $9 billion towards June. This gives you the benefit of doubt that they're not giving you now because if you pay now, your reserves drop below $5 billion. Then that's why you're hearing ratings agencies say they're going to downgrade you because then your rating will have, will have worsened. So the issue here is not, it's not really whether you pay in June or in December, it's the ability to pay. So even if you pay in December, but your reserve still looks low, it's not going to alleviate the concern. So why pay? And then you could use these funds to reduce the local currency borrowing bit between then and June. And yeah. you'll be saving yourself paying 18% interest. So whatever savings you'll make on the dollar side, maybe, maybe you buy a 10%, you're still better off uh, waiting for June. But that's my opinion. Indeed, and, and you're not the only one who's raised questions around that. There's an interesting point, though, that Dominic the Austrian is raising in response to a question that we were discussing earlier with, with Hungary. And, and Dixon, since you're a bit more familiar with bond markets than I am, your input on this would be interesting. Because the argument I was making earlier was there's clear signs of economic distress, right? Debt service costs are spiraling. Your, your effective tax base is not as productive or as large as... as perhaps might have been at, well, at some point in the, in, in the past. So the argument he's making here is this. If you look at some of the clauses that we have baked into the Eurobond prospect, right? That clause that says holders of 25% of the notes can recall the entire loans and interest in the event of default, which can be caused by non-payment of any external debt or moratorium on the foreign debt. Now, I guess this hinges on how we're defining what a default is asking for an extension on other debts, say, for example, the syndicated loans that we have with uh, TDB, the Trade and Development Bank. If we essentially ask for an extension on that, or the loans to CDB, uh, China Development Bank, Axiom Bank of China, is asking for an extension going to be seen as a default event? It's always a gray area, but ideally the default comes when you literally refuse to meet up a payment, or rather unable to meet a payment as and when it falls due. If any of your creditors is happy to restructure the loans and they don't have to actually touch that particular one, or they could, again, agree to restructure the particular papers that you're holding, and this is in full agreement with the creditor, then I'm not sure that can be classified as a default. Yeah, It's always great in the sense that was it voluntary by the investor or rather the guy you own. If they're the ones who are giving that accommodation, then I don't think that would be a default. But if you unilaterally then ask, and then they, if, if they don't give you, and then you defer or delay payments, then that's when the default happens. The default happens when you don't meet a commitment as well as and when it falls due. In terms of just the 2024 bit, I know Makai has, has, has alluded that 24, 25 will be harder. My opinion is that this year was going to be our, our hardest by far because we do have a lot of foreign currency maturities, and this had increased. The about the rollover from the 1.3 trillion last year, principles and, and coupon rollovers. 
to initiate their plans for 1.8 with the currency going most likely to go above 2 trillion versus obviously revenues of about uh, 2 trillion change. So ideally this year was really hard because then nearly the whole budget uh, is being financed um, via, via borrowing. To the extent that we still budgeted about 700 billion or 800 billion in uh, development expenditure, it just then shows that we have some scope to cut spending, even if we can't cut much of the current expenditure because most of it is going to service debt. You can again defer some of the development expenditure into into next year, so which will buy you some headroom. We did that last year, I think to some extent. The same might, might happen this year because the revenue side obviously is not going to match up. But out of the 800 billion, if you took out 300 billion, I think that sort of looks like the prorata amount that revenues could fall by. You'll be fine. I don't see where the charter of default would come through. What's happening is that then you have less cash for investment. And obviously then that sort of weakens capital formation and the growth outlook. But at the moment, the growth seems to be holding up because that's coming from agriculture. And because of the output, whether it's a good range of fertilizer or whatever, you want to leave that too. It's likely that if agriculture output keeps up, then you're going to have some upside on growth. So that won't totally collapse, even if some of the other sectors might suffer a bit. Thanks. Uh, just for context for some of our listeners, um, this is a very rough outline of how government is thinking about the sequencing, right? Of the amount of cash they might be able in, to raise and when they might be able to raise it. So excluding the debt that they're looking to raise from the Trade and Development Bank and the Afraxim Bank, which I think TDB side is the all of about 300 million from TDB and have to syndicate and raise uh, a significant amount from other parties. But let's leave them out of the equation for the time being. So the thinking from Treasury is this, once the current review is done, there's an IMF team in the country at the moment that's working on our courage program review. Once that is done and goes to the board, so by December, we might have about $400 million coming in as part of the disbursement from that particular program. And then the next one, the seventh review, should be in June next year. Assuming successful completion, that's another 530 million bucks. So at that level, they're already close uh, to a billion dollars. On top of that, there will be negotiations, I believe, for a DPO, a development polish operation loan from the World Bank. And the discussion at the moment is for disbursement of around $750 million. So if you look at it, if you put essentially just the cash from World Bank and the IMF, if you just put those two together, that brings up fair, fairly close to that uh, two billion number um, that government is needing to to have at least uh, in the bank uh, by the end of June uh, next year, just to make sure that we can comfortably settle the 2024 euro bond without then having to dip into reserves. Dixon, I want to come back to you on your outlook for 2024 because if I understood you correctly, given the the, the performance of the agricultural sector so far, it seems like your outlook is a bit more optimistic than some essentially would have for next year. Do I understand you right there? It's not really that great, but what I'm saying is that the numbers that the Treasury has at 6% versus what maybe the IMF has as 4.8 might be somewhere in the middle of that, but 4.8 or towards 6 or whatever, it's, it's not really a bad outcome. could be much worse. Yeah given the pressure we are seeing on the other sectors of the economy. We've seen the PMIs are very pressured. The last PMI, Stambic PMI, that came out last week. You can see there are some sectors that are really struggling. Uh, productivity is suffering. Uh, we have people getting laid off. But when I look in next year, part of the issues that, that, that bedeviled us a lot this year was number one, was 
the fact that uh, all the way into June, we had huge fiscal issues. I think uh, before the 200 billion that came through in June and the last minute dollar flows we got close to 200 billion into June. The whole of last year, there was nothing much happening on the public sector side. Yeah. And then we are coming from a drought situation where catch output was again quite low. I'm uh, looking at the harvest into, into last year. For, we have very high food inflation. You had governments unable to pay suppliers. We had huge pending bills, salaries delayed into June. So the impact of that has spilled off in, into this year. But I don't see the same going to next year. Uh, for one, we've had a really good harvest. So there's going to be some bit of improvement in household budgets in the sense of the amount that goes out to buy food. But also, more importantly, the current account uh, deficit, the amount of money that we'll spend as a country to buy food, that reduces, which then means that uh, you're slowly accreting some bit of savings uh, in, in the system. I've seen the current account deficit has dropped to 3.6, that was of July. But if you look at the trend, because the data is, is quite delayed, if you look at the trends into those, for, into those months and you look at that anecdotal data coming through, talking of lower oil consumption and stuff like that, ideally you would imagine that there is a bit more compression of that deficit. And as that deficit is shrinking, then you're having a higher savings rate coming to the country, which is slowly improving household budgets. Inflation was higher last year. Inflation is 6% this year. We have sectors of the inflation that are quite elevated, like energy, uh, again, because of the currency depreciation. But I think we've seen much worse inflation in the country. It's just that uh, inflation normally is looked at year on year. So once it goes up this year, then if um, at a higher level, especially core inflation, uh, then even if it drops to zero, that there's no growth beyond there, people will still be saying inflation is high because the prices have gone up and they're, they're, and they're sticking at that level. But if you strip out energy, which is a headline inflation, you can see that there's a bit of a plateauing on the inflation side. That again, compared to last year, means that the households will not suffer as much in detail. Next year, especially if agricultural output continues being the way it is, we're seeing good rains now. So if you have another good harvest, food inflation is anchored. The energy side, we can't really tell because that will depend on where the currency eventually settles. But even if the currency keeps moving higher, you might have higher energy inflation, higher oil inflation. But again, the savings rate and the savings from the higher household spending on food, that could again alleviate. So I don't see next year being as, as tough as last year. And, and because of that agricultural output, I think if that holds up, then there's a chance that we have 6%. Growth, right. like the moment is seen, could be five and a half. And then some other sectors might also pick up. We don't have election this year, so tourism obviously is doing much better. And as our oh, currency is like 25% weaker, you're much cheaper destination, relatively speaking. Exactly. Excluding the nonsense that's going on at JKA at the moment. Is that notwithstanding, if you try and book a hotel now, try and book a flight to Mombasa over the next three months, and you can see clearly there's quite a bit of demand, the demand there. So there's some. Aspects of the economy that are actually doing well, even from this deposition. And if I compare that to last year, same time, you can see clearly it's slightly better. Yeah. The inflation bit, it's painful. The taxes, again, I think uh, the, the tax bit feels a bit more painful because of the energy and, and fuel inflation, the, the, the headline inflation. But the incremental year on year, or rather year on year, is not that much. It's not what is making the difference for everyone to say things are collapsing. Yeah. So you have maybe VAT on fuel, which went 8%. So yes, fuel, fuel inflation is high, but which other tax really is material to that extent that it's going to collapse consumption. Yeah. If you have, if you're periled, obviously there's a bit of pinch there, but most of the street is not periled and there was really not that much in taxes beyond the energy side. 
So on a macro basis, I think the PR on the tax on the inflation, which was really high elevated last year, is not the situation right now. A 6% inflation has, is, is, is what we've always been used to. It's only that uh, we are coming from a very high inflation environment of 10% and core inflation really did go up substantially. That uh, put this right. pressure. And obviously, we've been an import-dependent economy and the currency moving to 5%. If you upper-income households and you consume a lot of imported goods, then obviously you're seeing a lot more inflation than someone who maybe grows their own food and, and, and consumes it in the rural areas. Maybe they are seeing 2-3% inflation if they are not using a lot of uh, traveling around, if they don't have the energy um, aspect of it. So it's a, it's a bit nuanced, but I don't think we're going to have as, as a terrible a situation, especially after in the 24, 25 fiscal year as we had this year. So latter part of last year, next year, I think we'll do that. Dixon, I want to get back to you on that question around the impact of the things that we're seeing now, right? And then the, the fiscal policy trajectory that we're going into uh, 2024 with. Because looking at the medium term revenue strategy for 2024, some of the tax proposals in it seem to be inimical, right, to doing business. It's an extra tax here, an extra tax there. And you're being hit both at, at county level with extra taxes there, and then you're being hit at the national government level as well. At what point does it get where it essentially, that then translates into lower employment, lower investment? We're already seeing that now, even before the implementation of the medium-term revenue strategy for next year. It's a bit interesting. I think the challenge that we face with the tax collection all emanate from the debt side. And simply because usually when you have velocity of money, look, the government spend taxes in the economy. So if it's a matter of left hand, right hand, yeah, I tax you, I spent, then I come back and tax you again. But with this scenario where we've had such huge debt service, 1.9 trillion, 2 trillion, ideally, if you look at the holders of that debt, 900 billion is supposed to go offshore. So you tax people, the money goes, it doesn't come back to the economy. The other bit uh, is obviously held by pensioners who are long-term investors. So again, you pay the interest, it gets locked in, transferred to the private sector, but doesn't come back to the real economy. Same as what goes to the um, insurance firm. The only bit I would say that might recycle back maybe the individual holding, which has increased to 8% of the holding. So all that $2 trillion that's been spent on taxation is not really going back to help the economy grow. In the past, when we had a tax GDP of 23%, I think up to during the Kibaki years, the loss, because the fiscal deficit was quite low and the component that was used to service debt was just 8% of, of, of the budget, then you'd have circulation of money. So even if you have a lower taxes, the taxes are circulating back uh, quicker to the economy and then you have that velocity that allows you to get more taxes. Now, the challenge is we're at a point where we have this debt service, which you must, because if you default, then you're going to have a bigger problem. But the tax to GDP is still low, it's 14%. So ideally, people might feel they are taxed very high, but in actual terms, the, the amount of tax that is yielded is, is not that high. So that's a conundrum. Let's go into yeah. that in a bit more detail, because the, it's the same sort of argument that I actually heard from the finance minister when we spoke last month. And his argument was, and I'm quoting him directly here, when I left the central bank, the tax revenue to GDP ratio was 22%. I've come back to realize it went down as far as 13.7% of GDP. That cannot happen without a major structural shift. But then, where is this structural shift? Right. That's the argument from Professor Ndungo when we spoke last month. Thoughts on it? So for me, when I look at it, it's simple because we have a limited amount of capital. It can either go to the private sector or the public sector. So the public sector hogged the capital 
for a long time. So you're running 8% deficits, borrowing all that money from the banking system, which then meant there was not much left for the private sector. And also for the banks, they became lazy because then they don't have to lend to the private sector. The street, they can lend to you and you're able to take all the cash. You stopped off the, the private sector, public sector is not a huge yield of taxes. So any investment you've done as a government, usually, usually either you're trying to boost a monopoly, which is inefficient, or you're building railways, which again, disrupting, for example, the SGR, if you build SGR good, you've built infrastructure and you add that to the GDP, you say you've added a trillion, but at the same time, you've offset that by removing 50,000 trucks who are consuming fuel and the whole value system that was in the streets towards that. So you have a larger economy, but then you have lower taxation. And then you do this over and over again over, over five, six, seven years. So at the end of it all down, you find a point where you've spent so much on the public side and now you're expecting people to give you taxes to cover this deficit that you've created because you've borrowed all these funds. So you have a huge tax bill, but then you went and disrupted the capital formation from the private sector because you borrowed all the cash. So they invested less, but then your thinking was the projects I do are going to raise this much taxes because there'll be growth and then from that I'll be pay off the loans. So not only are you not able to raise those taxes, you also shrunk the tax base from the people who are supposed to pay you. So when professors come in, that situation is meeting. Now you can't fix that uh, overnight. I'm not sure how you can fix that because ideally the private sector will have to invest and that will take time. It's, it's like the same way we are thinking the about the current account deficit. Yeah, the currency has adjusted higher, but you need time for the, for the private sector to find the capital to invest and then offset that. But at the same time, because the interest rates are high and you're going through a crisis, banks are not willing to lend. So this is where now it becomes a conundrum where you actually need either SDI or someone to come in and plug that deficit. The way it is because the conditions are great right now. If you're producing in country, you'll do well, but you don't have the capital to build the capacity. At the same time, government needs taxes to pay the debt. So it's really a tough situation. I guess ideally what we'll have to do is that uh, at some point we'll have tax spending. I'll then reduce public spending if we're not able to raise the taxes, just postpone development expenditure, because that could be the only hanging fruit, the low hanging fruit, to just reduce the, the capital requirement that you need, borrow less from the system, and then over time, the private sector will then step in and, and take passive. Given, given where we stand at the moment, right, you look at the outcomes from infrastructure bond auctions. Earlier this week, it was six and a half year, partially amortized, better part of 18%. This today's auction results on the T-bills, 91-day note raised a government came to the, to the market looking for the usual number of 4 billion on that one. They got, I think, 37 billion at 15.3%, right? For how much longer though, will those short-term rates, medium-term rates remain elevated? Is that just going to be our status quo for 2024? Because by implication, that essentially suggests that lending into the private sector next year will also be pretty subdued. It's just a matter of, again, you, go, you, you need to go back to the budget and just cut the amount you need to borrow. Even if you use that to service the interest on debt. Because the reason why interest is up is because market is scared of duration. Uh, by duration, I mean they don't want to buy a long-term paper because if interest rates go higher, banks will have to write, to write off those losses against their capital. So... Most of the buying, I think, when I went to the FB, when I look at it, given that there was 32 billion of non-competitive bids, I would imagine there was a huge chunk of uh, retail investors or corporate investors who bought that. And I saw an article last month saying that of the 350 billion of issued this year, 14, 41% has been bought by individual investors, which tells you that the classic natural buyers of paper would have been pension funds are not buying. 
and banks, obviously, if you look at the numbers, the bond holding uh, on the data on the central bank, you notice for the last two years, they literally have net sold bonds or they just not buy, they just buying bills around the short time. So banks are scared of duration and they've tried to lend to the street, but then because the economy is so weak, we've seen credit NPLs picking up. So even there, I'm not sure they're willing to go on out and, and lend because again, if the economy is tough, you are not going to find good quality of borrowers. What solves um, the interest rate conundrum? On some level, because the currency is going and the currency is appreciating, then it does make sense for us to have slightly higher interest rates because that does defend, it makes it more expensive for people to speculate against the currency. We can see uh, foreign currency deposits are going up in the banking system, which means a lot more people are holding on to, to dollars. You need to make that expensive for them. And that means you have to sustain the high interest rates. If those who are not doing that, then you'd have a lot more shilling in the system. Uh, because when you convert and buy dollars, you're, you're basically reducing the amount of shillings you have. And if you had that extra shillings, then you'd have interest rates coming down. So to me, I think the trigger to interest rates capping would have to be either the currency topping out or the fiscal deficit being reduced. And then the expectation of higher interest rates in the market then will, will reduce. We are paying over 10% real yields now, given where inflation is and where interest rates are going. That's very restrictive. Yeah, ideally. So on some level, we can consider that at some point that might be what helps the currency uh, find a peak. But again, we still have the other issues of uh, meeting the coming maturities um, on the on the on the euro bond side. Maybe that is a signal that we we'll have to go. Like we've paid that, then market might say, okay, fine. If the risk a little, can we come back and buy assets? Because bonds are cheap, equities are cheap, everything is cheap, but there is no investor confidence. To come back, someone needs to come in and do that stimuli to come nerves. And this situation, like you, you rightly say, can last for a long time because something needs to change. To me, if all else fail, we should just cut spending. Just go and say, okay, fine, this year is lost. I wanted to borrow 400 billion. I'm just going to borrow 200 billion. That's it. Then as soon as you say that, guys will be like, oh, wait a minute. What? We want to buy bonds. You say, no, I'm not issuing. Then sort of interest rates could come down at that point in time. <laughs> But if you say, I want to issue 400 billion, guys will be like, okay, we're going to wait until, because we don't know how much more you want to issue. So if they cut spending, that could fix it. And yet, it's, it's a difficult move to pull off. It's a difficult. You're essentially telling guys, listen, there's, the, the gravy train is not as big as it was. So we have to essentially adjust accordingly. Yes. Say that, that or the currency tops out. If the currency tops out, and one class of investors is quite underweight Kenya asset is offshore investors. So if the currency were to stop out and there was clearing of the FX side, then you could easily see a billion dollars maybe or more coming to buy both equities and, uh, and debt. So everyone is waiting for the first trigger to come. But what, what would make Kenyan equities more attractive, especially given the sort of year that we've had? Because every time I look into to, to data on the terminal or on FT, especially this last two months, the last couple of weeks, it's just been... Record low is a record low on the NSC 20, 14, 16, I think is where we closed today. If that trend continues, it's going to be in the high 1300s by next week, if not tomorrow. The fundamentals of some of the companies are still think, yeah, they've been battered a bit, but they're relatively robust. You know, KCB is now valued at what, 330, 350 bucks for a South African bank or Nigerian entity that looks at that and says, we just want to do one big bank mentioned into East Africa, pick it up relatively cheap. But. What would we need to do to switch market perceptions and say, you know what, Kenyan equities look fairly decent? So there is a nice article today, actually, on Bloomberg, where they're saying uh, the Kenya index is 
uh, on a record discount to the MSCI EM index. I think we are at about 28% of, assuming the index is at 100, we are at 28%, which is like really low, more than three times cheaper. Yeah. So uh, why is that? Ideally, uh, we've locked out offshore investors because of not having a clearing currency. So that's one bit of it. The other bit, obviously, is that uh, when interest rates are this high, the discounting factor, if you're using all those valuation models, the discounting valuation model means that you have to discount your future cash flows that you expect from, from investment on, on, on equities versus the current interest rate. And the higher the interest rate, the more you discount the value of the underlying asset. So if you're discounting at 18%, you have to start thinking how many asset classes can beat 18%. There will not be many. So whether it's uh, equities, whether it's real estate, whatever it is, you have to value it differently. You have to not value it. You have to just give it a lower cash value because the future discount values is quite expensive. So to me, two things will need uh, to change. Number one, I think in, if interest rates were to come down, then immediately I think guys will turn around and start buying equities because then the cost of carry, the cost of the discount factor has has come down. From, from the offshore side, again, they might see it as cheap, but there's an issue of market access because they are like, okay, fine, I could buy, but my exit might not be as smooth because last time I had to wait two weeks or a week to get the FX. And unless I see a clearing interbank market that's open for both offshore and offshore, because right now offshore banks are not in the market. Onshore banks might be trading, but it's a closed user set. If offshore banks are not accessing liquidity, then they're the same ones who will be selling. And if they're not willing to sell, then so they can't participate. Basically, we're back to the same situation that we had last year where JP Morgan was telling clients that. It's different. It's different now because if you want to buy, you'll buy. You can buy. Yeah. If you want dollars, you buy dollars. There is no no waiting period, per se. But there is a bit of a spread. You get, there is no market trading. It's more like people matching sales. You find buyers, you find sellers, and they're matching from 150 to 157. There is no one rate you can say this is the interbank rate. Uh, You have the official rate market is playing a bit higher than that. So if you came to sell and you wanted to buy tomorrow, what's the spread you'll get? Right. Now to essentially account for that. For yes. That, uh, if I'm going to come in and there's a 5% and then, you know, our cost of already transactions already high is another 2%, I think, to enter 2% to exit. So I'm already 10% out. And I'm like, you know what? And at the same time, whoever is supposed to come invest here, it also has alternatives where you're saying double B high yield bonds in America, double B names are paying above 10%. The, the two-year bond was at five, five and a half of the other day. So uh, that's from the government side. So triple A names were close to eight, triple B names were above 10. So I'm getting 10% on dollar in America. What's the incentive for me to go buy frontier assets? You need to pay me like 30% or something like that to make sense for the excess risk I'm taking, both on the frontier side and credit risk on the side. So you need to also see the interest rates on the West come down a bit. Maybe we might need to see a recession in the U.S. maybe next year. That would hurry things a bit because then Fed would cut. If it's a soft landing, that might still drag it out for another nine months or even a year before we see some sort of the moderation we might need to see guys starting to look in the frontier assets. So if the offshore investors were to come in, and remember there were a big chunk of participation at some point were 80%. If those were to come in, then equity values will adjust to where we think the fair value is. Dividend yield is quite good. I think most of them are paying above 10%, but it's good only if you look at it in, in its regularity. If you compare that to the bond side, it's still paying higher. So as long as interest rates are paying 18%, again, you might not rush 
to invest in equities. And also for our investment class, which are people who buy equities in Kenya, mostly pension funds, they are rated based on what peers do. And this will be hard here because they've had to take a huge mark-to-market loss on the bond side. Mark-to-markets on the equity side, some of the bigger holdings like Safaricom is down, what, 50-60% last year. So they, they, might, they might be reluctant to go and buy an asset class that's putting volatility on your asset book. They might be happier buying bonds these years because at least the loss there is not as, as painful as, as the loss on the equity side. So again, even them, they're also on a wait and see more. They are looking for an impulse. When that is seen, then they'll come back in. Asset can stay cheap and they can stay cheap for a long time. They can even get even cheaper. So if you're going to buy, just buy for the long term. If you're going to get double-digit dividends for 12% from an asset that you're buying at a price P ratio below 2, it's really a good buy. If you think historically where it's coming from, it might have an upside of 2-30%, but you'll have to wait a long time to get that value. Indeed. And just for context for some of our listeners at the moment, there's actually a chart that the Mongo Capital team put up courtesy of the talented folks over at Bloomberg. The stocks in Nairobi are trading at around 3.6% estimating earnings for, for 2024. Compare that with 7.3 times for Nigeria's benchmark, 9.4 times for Joburg, and 8.8 times from MSCI's uh, Index of Frontier Emerging Markets. The Nigeria numbers for me are always quite interesting because of just how insane the ramp up in the NGX all share has been this year, especially after they started making adjustments on the foreign currency, the formal interbank market that they had after the change of their central bank governor. We're approaching, what, 9.30 p.m., so we're on the tail end of the conversation tonight. Dixon, just before we wrap up, we've been speaking about the, the red flags, right, all over the place in, in Kenya's economy tonight. Weakness in household spending, the, the, the need to trim down government spending. Either we do it ourselves or the market will compel us to do it. 2020 repayment of the euro bond is not an issue. That's, I think, been definitively sorted, even if we exclude inflows that the government has been speaking about from TDB and a Frexin bank because they haven't delivered that just yet. From your perspective, is there any bright spot in 2024? Let's put it this way. Some of the brightest factors that we have are number one, I think the largest for Kenya that's always underappreciated is the fact that 98% of our local currency debt is locally owned. So, yeah, in a sense, we will not see the sort of uh, coupon pressure that will come from offshore investors trying to exit our debt situation. And also, that then means that uh, if market was to turn because of the lower allocation, then ideally you could see huge flows coming to, to chase of assets, both, again, equities and then debt. So that's a long-hanging fruit. And the other bit is that we have to pay a huge amount of, of foreign currency debt this year. That is not being repeated next year. In a sense, we might start accruing sex reserves, but that will be contingent on us getting support beyond 2024. IMF and World Bank have come through a lot for us to pay that euro bond. I'm not sure how much spare capacity they'll have beyond there. We might find we have other sources. There's a lot of chapter to carbon credits, uh, carbon offset uh, programs coming through, which could raise some funding. That uh, could be a positive sign that comes through. We might also see interest rates moderating in the West. So if that were to happen, then again, both FDI and portfolio flows would come in. Again, it's because if, if investors are, were getting double-digit returns in the West, they had a little reason to come in, even if you offered compelling reasons to come in. But once those yields come down, then you might see even FDI pickup. I guess it would be easier to raise capital for markets like Kenya. 
they'll be looking to get uh, yields from the cheap relations that they see in Kenya. So that will be another sort of low hanging fruit. But on, on the downside and the risks, I think mostly surrounding interest rates. If they keep going up, I think that's going to be a worry. The currency keeps going up. Again, that's a pain both for inf the inflation side, the cost of fuel and imported items, plus the cost of interest service. If that keeps going up, then means that we postpone further development expenditure into 26. And that might not be ideal. At some point, the high interest rate will start becoming a huge drag on the economy. We need to see those moderating. If those two really, I think, they now have the biggest headache, if you ask me. Everything else is uh, look good. There's a question here that's been sent in. Uh, I think this came here by the DMs. How do you think banks are likely to perform in Q3, Q3 results, which I think are due to come out later uh, this month, given, given all the macro factors that we've discussed in the last 90 minutes or so, right? Household spending has diminished. It's been battered by inflation, higher taxes, weaker currency. Will that essentially then translate into lower interest income and a lot more and, and a much larger holding perhaps of, of government assets on banks' books? So I'll just speak generally because I don't want to be specific so much, but for starters, banks avoided buying a lot of paper, but interest rates are generally higher. So what they've done is that they've increased loan rates. I think interest rates have increased and obviously they're holding a record loan book. So we have to look at it this way. Number one, the margin side will go up. That's net interest margin that the banks charges because especially for the larger ones, they don't pay much on deposits. Some are still paying zero for what you call CASA. This is a current account or savings account. So you have a margin of 18% or 17% from 1 to say 12 or 13. That's a huge uplift on an asset book of uh, trillions. So you have that side. But on the same side, you're going to have a huge increase in MPLs. So provisioning. So the question is, with the provisionings outweigh the sort of revenue uplift they'll see from the higher net interest margin. My take is that it will depend on bank to bank, depending on who, the quality of the loan book. Some banks were light on loans, some banks are heavy on certain sectors. Certain sectors will get hurt more, more than others. You might find that some of the real estate mortgage is going up might mean that there's more defaults there as opposed to say consumer loans, which might retain uh, the sort of asset quality that was there. Or maybe the losses there might not be as much as the, as the losses on the mortgage side. So depending on how each bank is structured, some banks might actually do exceptionally well, some might struggle, but the only drag then will be the NPLs. So the banks that provision a lot on the NPL side might struggle. And especially because right now the liquidity so low is not easy to realize or natural if you need to use for close. It's not the best environment, but remember the padding is quite, it's quite decent on the asset side. So I don't expect banks would actually make losses. I think I would expect most banks to have some year on year growth, given that the quality of the asset book that will, will become bad and it's still early days. I don't think it'll last the time. So I think banks are still going to do well. And just to, to buttress that point, the way the central bank governor essentially put up his view of, of NPLs last month in Morocco, he said, yeah, NPLs are around 15% at the moment, but capital adequacy ratios are relatively high, around 19%, which is almost 500 basis points about where they should be in terms of minimum levels. Liquidity ratios are also fairly robust, around 50% or thereabouts. And in his words, banks are provisioning for these NPLs. So if you take those into account, NPLs are significantly lower. It just means that you're going to take a much bigger hit as banks absorb the hit from these NPLs remaining. 
as high and as sticky as they are at the moment. All right. I want to move to close out the conversation. I'd like to thank all our speakers who've carved our time of the time out of their busy schedules tonight. Ongari, thank you very much for your time this evening. Dixon, uh, we'll give you an opportunity to make your closing thoughts in just a moment. Uh, Johnson Derry, so unfortunately we had to deal with all kinds of technical gremlins and trying to get his views onto the space tonight. And it's always fun having Derry on the program because there's always something left field that forces us to think about how we frame things quite differently. Dixon, you, you get the closing word and then we'll wrap up the space. Sure. I think a year ago in one of these spaces, to ask what needs to be done to fix the economy. Then we were looking at different circumstances coming from the huge backlogs and payments from the subsidies and the broke government. And the answer was net market fix interest rates, let market fix the currency rates, and next move towards fiscal austerity and on some level unless risk taxes. Basically try to reduce the expenditure side of the budget. So I would say it seems like we've allowed the first two to work well. Government doesn't really have a lot of input on the currency side. And the more they try to control it, the worse they make things down the line. Rightly, I've had the right noises coming from the policymakers towards the currency side. So I don't think we're going to move to control that. The interest rate, again, they've allowed market to set those. Ideally, those eventually will, is what will cool the demand and help the currency side, which should dry things up. The only lever I guess we might, we have left now is a fiscal spending side. Why, why does it look like we don't have any hope? I think we still have that. And if things, whether, whether they're forced by markets, not buying paper or by the realization that they need to uh, sort of keep to the deficit targets, we still have capacity to reduce spending. So with this in mind, then it, it says that we still have some hope. We're not out of things to do. We're not out of hope. And as tough as things look, I think the economy is adjusting and forming. And uh, you can see that, uh, and you'll start seeing that in the data coming through, whether it's a current account deficit, the level of exports, shrinking imports. And over time, as uh, this sort of positive impulses start picking pace, I, I guess uh, we might see the end of this fast period. So yeah, things look tough. They always say in, in macros, it's always darkest before dawn. Are we at that point? We don't really know because uh, we're still in the middle of uh, the twin crises coming from the deficit, both current account and fiscal. But I think we are going in the right direction on some level. I think so. The situation we are in is, is quite dire. Will we come through unscathed? Maybe not. But I think we've done all we could have to a large extent. And I think we just need to keep our hopes up. I think better days are still ahead. Thanks. We'll try and keep that in mind going into 2024 with all the challenges that we have in our little corner of East Africa. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time this evening. We don't take your time for granted. And as always, you can find a lot more content and commentary on things that are happening in, in our little economy here in East Africa on uh, Mongo Capital's account. So keep tabs on their account, follow them, respond, engage. Yeah, there's always going to be an update there for you. Asantheni Sana, and we'll see you in the next one.